and above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's word. What do we know about God's word? Dear Father, we pray to you this day, we ask you to show us your word. Please uh, reveal it fully in our hearts and our minds and let us obey it and understand it and reveal it to this world. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You may be seated. So in 1 Samuel chapter 11, King Saul actually has concern for the people. He wants to know why the people are troubled. And after he learns their trouble, he actually does gather the people and go fight the Ammonites and free Gadish Gilead. But he's not king yet. In chapter 13, after being anointed as king, we find out that Saul has been king for two years. And we find out that uh, he was once in a town called Michmash with 2,000 men, but that he had retreated from Michmash, and now his number was 600. The reason for his retreat is because the Philistines had moved in. They had 30,000 chariots and 6,000 horsemen, and it said the number of the people was of the sand of the sea. And so Paul had, I mean, Saul had retreated to Gilgal. And there his people were trembling and scattered. It said that the people were hiding in caves and thickets and rocks and holes and pits. And Samuel was seven days late. So Saul goes out and plans on offering both the burnt offering and the peace offering. He makes it through the burnt offering, and Samuel shows up. Samuel comes on the scene and says, what have you done? Saul's reply is that the people were scattering from me. You had not arrived. The Philistines are gathered here in front of me, and therefore I had not made supplication to the Lord. He said, I felt compelled to do so. Turn to 1 Samuel with me a minute and look at verse 13. The question is, what should he have done? And what did he get blamed for? Samuel said to Saul in verse 13 of 1 Samuel 13, He says, you have done foolishly. 
You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever, but now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart, and the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you to do. Then Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal to Gibeath of Benjamin, and Saul numbered the people present with him, was about 600 men. So he had not obeyed, but what had he done? Was it indeed the sacrifice? The text never really says it was the sacrifice itself. Saul saw his circumstances. He saw the Philistines at 30,000 plus 6,000. He saw the people who had left him. But what he did not see was his inability to express help to the people. He gave no love to them. He didn't go pull them out of the holes. He gave no leadership. He gave no inspiration. He sought to do a sacrifice. And therefore, all of the things around him that he saw as threatening became not the threatening thing at all. He imploded from within and lost his kingdom. What we have before us today in 1 Peter speaks to us about the same sort of situations that we find. How should have Saul reacted in this situation? How should we react when we see these odds and these sufferings and these things that are around us? How should we then act is what 1 Peter is going to tell us. When you look at 1 Peter, what immediately strikes you is that a lot of the topics and the words that we've gotten used to don't appear in this short passage. In other words, we don't see him addressing the holy, the elect, the, the anointed, the precious. He's not speaking particularly to wives, husbands, or servants. He's talking more to a universal group of people in this passage. There's no mention of faith, no mention of hope. He's not addressing the pilgrims or sojourners. He doesn't mention them. And he doesn't even mention fiery trials, temptation, suffering. All that we've been talking about on our pathway to this little section of 1 Peter. What is on his mind is, I think, suffering. But it's outside of what he has to talk to him about it. We have to think of suffering as we know they are enduring it. In fact, it's we think Peter wrote this book in 60, year 60, and perhaps four years later, Peter was put to death. And not only Peter, within just a few years of this letter, Peter was put to death by crucifixion, Andrew was crucified, Philip was crucified, Paul was beheaded, all of the 12 were killed. James, the son of Zebedee, was executed by King Agrippa I, Matthew was slain by the sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was run through by a lance in India. Bartholomew was flayed to death in Armenia. 
James, the son of Alphaeus, was stoned and clubbed in Syria. Thaddeus was killed by arrows in Edessa. Simon the Zealot was attacked by a mob in Persia. And Matthias was burned in Syria. The only one that was spared was John. And he was in exile. It's the beginning, though. It's just the beginning of 250 years of persecution that the church is going to endure. Ten waves of the Roman Empire. It doesn't end. It goes from 64 to 313. At when Constantine becomes the ruler over the whole Roman Empire, is a Christian, and has the Edict of Milan, is when the persecution ends. The persecution, the martyrdom, the people that went through persecution and didn't die were scarred and marred for the rest of their lives. Some went through persecution and denied Christ and then wanted to come back to the church. And what would the church do with them? What if that was here before us today? All of this encircles these words that Peter is fixing to tell us. And I believe they're the very words that helped the church endure those 250 years. For us today, there's no martyrdom really. Not a lot of similarity to those days, but we did endure a gas shortage on Thursday. But there was hurricanes, people suffering. There were trials and tribulations in our lives. We know they're there dealing with one another, our marriages, our families, one another. We have our own 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen that we face. So Peter speaks to us too. And as important as it was to sustain that church until today, it remains with us today to sustain us. One last point before we go look at the very words. Peter sets us up for this is why we have to talk about it. I had a wise man tell me one time who was a, he was a missionary, is still a missionary, been a missionary to the Middle East for 30 plus years. What he explained to me is that the Jewish mind and the Gentile mind don't think the same. The Jewish mind is, is somewhat circular in thought and the Gentile mind is linear. And what we have in this passage, and Peter, you're going to see quickly how he's telling us he's using his Jewish mind right now. I mean, it's, it's, it's a circular thought that we have in the passage. We, we love that Gentile apostle Paul. We can make sense of that Gentile Paul. Sometimes we have a little trouble with the teaching of Jesus, Peter, and John. Here today, I'm going to propose that we come with our Jewish hats on. And we're going to have to think a little circular. Can you think circular? Okay, here we go. Okay. So, there's four circles. And I've titled them. The first circle is the big circle. And I titled it, Mind as Your Mind. The second circle is a little smaller. And I'm going to title it, Body. The third circle gets a little smaller yet, and I'm going to title it heart. And the fourth circle, the smallest of all, I'm going to title it bullseye. 
So you can almost picture a target that we're shooting for here. See how um, Peter sets us up. Verse 7. But the end of all things is at hand. This is not new to his mind. He's talked in chapter 1. He's always wanted to write this to us. Because in chapter 1 he says you were kept by the power of God for a salvation revealed in the last time. But he hasn't expanded on that thought yet. In chapter 1 he says you were ordained before the foundation of the world. Christ was manifested in these last times for you. But he hasn't expanded on that thought. And then our pre-sermon mantra the word of the Lord endures forever well, that kind of fits into the second half of this circle. Because you look, but at the end of all things is at hand, but jump to verse 11, at the end of verse 11, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Well, how can all things be ending, yet something enduring forever and ever? And that's where Jesus, where Peter has said there's a big circle around, or big parentheses, if you'd rather think, around this passage. And it's guarding this passage from everything else. I want you to think right here with me just a moment. The things of all things at hand are coming to end, but Jesus, his dominion, is forever and ever. Amen. Big circle number one, titled Mind. It's where he wants to get our mind. Yes, things on this earth are temporary. They are going to come to an end. But we can stand securely in the fact that Jesus Christ and his glory and his dominion will last forever. George Washington used to talk with his generals, those that he would say, the invisible hand. They would see wonders on the battlefield and he would turn to a fellow general and say, the invisible hand. And the other general would respond, the invisible hand indeed. And that's the attitude. That's where he wants your mind today. As we think about your life and how we're going to proceed, how we're going to face these chariots, we need to be aware that there exists the invisible hand who is in control of all things. As we see things drop, as we think unfold, and we think the end is at hand, God is in control. Big circle, number one. I kept coming to my mind thinking about, you know, I read a lot, the cat in the hat. This is little cat A. This is little cat B. This is little cat C. So we're through with big circle one. And we're going to big circle. Next circle. Little cat circle two. This titled body. It begins in the second half of verse seven. Therefore be serious and watchful in your prayers. And picks up again in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. 
If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. Pray and minister are a part of this circle, which I've entitled um, your body, because it's a tool. Your body is a tool used by God for his work. And so this prayer and this ministry is body, the circle body. How's the prayer to be done? It's to be done seriously. That means it should be done with a clear mind. It should be done with a righteous mind, being right-minded. It should be done with a world perspective, a world view that is a biblical worldview, which he set us up for in his overcompassing protective circle of our mind. That's the way prayer should be done. It should also be done, what he says is watchful. In 1 Peter 5, we haven't got there yet, in verse 8 it says, Be sober, vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. It's somewhat easy to pray. In fact, it's very common when I pray that I find myself praying for myself or about myself. But it's harder to remember, oh yeah, I've got to pray for others. And to know exactly how those others need prayer. But I thought as I read these verses, and what if your children were outside and you got, it doesn't take long for news to travel in Dallas. What if you got on the internet and they said, instead of a gas shortage, there was a lion roaring around in, uh, in the streets and your children were out there. How would you, you couldn't get to them, how would you pray for them? That's the way he wants us to pray for one another. This roaring lion is out there, and he wants you to come to your prayer time with this watchfulness for yourself and for others within the church. Second part of this circle is this ministry circle. Prayer and ministry, a part of this body circle being used by God. First of all, ministry should be done by speaking the oracles of God. Almost all the commentaries I read divided this up, say, hey, there was a speaking ministry, and there's this ministry that's not a speaking, and that is true. But what he's talking about here is as you do ministry, you naturally talk. You have to talk to people. And as you talk to people, speak the oracles of God. It has to be a part of your ministry, and it's set up by this prayer that's led it into it. It's a part of the ministry. And then the ministry is done with the ability that God supplies. And he expands on that. That ability that he supplies is through gifts. God gives us gifts. We always want to acknowledge that everyone has at least one gift. That is true. But I think the normal mode of operation is that each and every one of us have a multitude of gifts that God combines to be used in a special way. Think about it like this. Let's say instead of thinking about gifts, we're talking about the, the spiritual gift realm. We're talking about the body realm. Okay? 
I have the gift of arms. And you have the gift of arms. And I have the gift of legs. And you have the gift of legs. Now, let's go run. And each of us can handle that run in a different way. And each of us are special in a different way. And that's the same way that God combines gifts to give to us to use in his behalf. Peter's talking to us remembering the day that God taught that Jesus taught him. He to me is obviously in Matthew 25. Matthew 25 when he talks about um, these gifts it's presenting the gifts as the good steward. And that's what Peter says in verse 10 to be good stewards with the gifts. So in Matthew 25, Jesus is teaching Peter what a good steward is. And that's the steward that Peter has in his mind. What is this good steward? Well, he's a steward who took the five gifts that were given to him, and what did he do with them? He increased them to ten. And what did the steward do who got two? He increased them twofold, to four. If everyone only got one gift, that's the dangerous person in the passage. The guy that got one talent buried it and didn't increase it. Okay? So, look at the way the Lord says, according to his own ability, he's in Matthew, to each one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, and to each according to their ability. And he who received the five went and traded with them and made another five talents. Two went and gained two more, and one went and dug in the ground. And after a long time, the, the Lord of those stewards came back and settled accounts. And what did he say to the two who had increased it? Well done, for you were faithful over a few things. To the one who buried it, you wicked and lazy servant. Therefore we have our circle body in which we are to do ministry by our gifts and our speech preceded by prayer. That's circle number two. Circle number three. Remember, we titled this circle Heart. It begins with verse eight. And above all things, your NIV there says, have deep love. I don't think that's a good choice. Have fervent love for one another. It picks up again, the circle picks up again in verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. How do we get this love? It's a commanded love. Now, I'm sorry to my kids right now, but there's an illustration. You know when your kids come home and they've got the boyfriend or girlfriend with them? If if you say to them, I really like that person, there's no way that relationship's going to happen. <laughs> if you say, oh, I don't know about that person, look out. Okay? 
So you can't, it's not a normal thing to think about love being commanded. I cannot, I can't even recommend love in that case, right? But here we're being commanded to love. And love fervently. In John 13, Christ commanded, Christ says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you that you also love one another. And by this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The reason I disagree with the deeply loved in the NIV is because the love, I would like for it to highlight the word fervent, the way he's describing the love. It's a, stre it's a word indicating stretching, stretching, okay? Like an athlete. It would make perfect sense for me to say, we're going to go outside and we're going to run stretching ourselves. Now, I know that I would go out there and last for about 15 seconds, right? But I know what that means. That it means if I'm going to have to really run and stretch myself, then I need to train. I need to start exercising. I need to build myself up for this run. And that's exactly the way Peter wants us to think about this love. It's a love that you can obey, but you train for it. And you exercise yourself toward it. It's a love that we work on in the inside of us. So how do we know how we're doing at working at this love? How do we know how this love is doing? Well, that's the second part of the circle. Because he says to be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now, because somebody's thrown the little switch in here about the word gift, we're quick to say, think this is talking about the gift of hospitality, but it's not. This is Peter explaining to us how he wants to see the love expressed. We're going to go back to Matthew 25. Hear this. For I was hungry... And you gave me food and hospitality type of love. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. And I was in prison and you came to me. That is the exhibiting of this love outwardly that's an indication of how it's going in your heart. When did I do that? It said, you did it to one of the least of the brethren. And when you did it, Christ said, you did it to me. So, he adds another word here. It says, without grumbling. Now, the way I like to picture the grumbling is sort of like a, when you check your oil on your car, the grumbling's a dipstick. How's that love going? Whoop, there's some grumbling. I've got to do something about that love. Because remember, I'm in training. I'm training my love. And so if you see grumbling, what do you do? I think you go back to big circle one. Where am I at? Where's my bearings? Oh, it's, things are ending, yet Jesus is eternal. 
Go back to little, little circle two. Where's my head? And now I'm back in my heart. And then that's the way you work on this love. Hospitality is a perfect a way to think and describe that word because it's a risking it. Am I going to, the ministry with, at the church, am I going to risk leaving my house and come here and stay overnight? Am I going to risk people coming into my house and cooking food for them and having, you know, giving up time with my family? It takes a giving up of yourself to do that type of love. Okay, the bullseye. The bullseye reads this, For love will cover a multitude of sins. A little tension, a little tension here. Does that mean that if we're loving one another, that we should hide sins? Well, the, the correct way to think through this cover in this word, I think, is to think of it more. Remember he's talked earlier about fiery trials. And I know we've got some firemen in the audience, but we need to think through this as more of the way you would extinguish a fire. That's the covering he's talking about. You, you will put out the fire by extinguishing it, covering it. You put a blanket over it. You put a, uh, something over it. You take out the oxygen. And that's the way you will cover this sin. But I still, in my mind, I have another tension. And I've had it for a while as I've read First Peter. When he, when he gives the specific indication of what Christ has done on the tree, 2.24, he bore our sins on the tree. Verse 13 of, of, of chapter 3. He suffered for our sins, the just for the unjust, bringing, bringing us to God. And then in verse 21 of chapter 2, he suffered for us as an example. And then last week in verse 1 of chapter 4, Christ suffered for us, arm yourself with the same mind who has suffered has ceased from sin. And so as I've thought all along, as I'm trying to arm myself and use Christ as an example, Christ took care of sin. I can't take care of sin. How do I mix this together? And Dr. Fowler did a great job talking about how our example was that he did it in a way that no, there was no deceit. And so we follow in that example. When we suffer, there's no deceit. He did it in a way that he did not revile to those who had reviled him. And that's an example to us in the way we endure suffering. But as I'm thinking through, and I'm thinking of us trying to emulate the cross and dine with Christ, are we taking care of sin? And then I come into a verse like this, love will cover a multitude of sins. And so I sense tension in my mind. How do I deal with that? And what is he talking about that? Well, He's actually quoting Proverbs 10, 12, which says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sin. That's what he's quoting, Proverbs chapter 10. And the way that um, I've decided that is a, we can explain it is that we've already drawn some circles, so now I want to draw some lines. What you have is a vertical line 
And there is sin that occurs on this vertical line. And that sin is between a man and his God. And yet, everything that Christ did on the cross took care of that sin that's on that line. And I can't do anything except add sin to the line. Okay? But now, I want to think about a horizontal line. Boy, Baba almost did that. The horizontal line. The horizontal line is sin between man and man. And that's what Peter is telling us we can do something about. We can take care of things. In fact, we can cover that sin. There's not a sin on that line. The multitude of sins that you can put on that line can be covered in somewhat of the same way in which Christ covered the vertical sin, we cover the horizontal. But that scares me to death. Sin scares me to death. Just this week, I sinned against my brother. You know, I'm thinking about when, when grumbling, when Mark asked us to pray just a minute ago, I knew I was going to come up here and preach about grumbling, and I forgot to ask forgiveness for grumbling. I mean, I was getting through anger, envy, selfishness, pride, love. I mean, anti, you know, all of those things is where, and I'm going to check the oil stick for grumbling. So what do I do? How do I find rest? Well, Mark talked a week ago or a few couple of weeks ago about Augustine and that he didn't know Greek. And that's true. He didn't know Greek. It gets worse than that. He only knew, he, he only knew Latin. He used Latin. The Latin Bible he had had errors in it. It gets worse than that. The Latin Bible that he had wasn't even complete. It doesn't have everything our Latin Bible has today. It gets worse than that. His Latin Bible had the Apocrypha in it. Yet he had a relationship with God that was so pure and so tender and, and so an wonderful and enormous that God took care of his heart and his thoughts. And so his thoughts were tremendous and they were also a lot of them. He wrote over a hundred books. That's in his ministry time, three books a year. He wrote over 300 letters and over almost 600 sermons. It's said that no man can read all of Augustine's books in his lifetime. And God cared enough about him to give him three years in the end to go back and read his major works and wrote what he called the retractions to take care of some of his mistakes because he changed over the years. He didn't know Greek, but in the 13th century, his words were translated from Latin to Greek. And then the Greeks had to start dealing with Augustine. In fact, they're still dealing with Augustine. His confessions that he wrote in the year 400 have never gone out of print. And he has this idea about the love that he understood about the God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. And I'm trying to memorize this, but I don't have it. I want to get it right for you. But he said, God's love is not a thing. It's a relationship. And that 
That relationship is to be shared and returned in kind. God is perfect. And so his love is perfect. But since he is perfect, the object of his love must also be perfect. So God must love himself. That's a bit Jonathan Edwards. God must love himself. God's concept of himself is Christ. Hebrews 3 says Christ is the brightness of his glory and the exact image of his person. And therefore, God loves his son. But for the love to be perfect, the love must be returned. So, the son loves the father. The shared love between the father and the son is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what is the binding love, the uniting love between the father and the son. Now, I know this is just knowledge and somewhat rhetoric, but I believe it's so beautiful and it sounds so true. And there's nothing, you know, the Trinity itself. It, you talk about fear of sin, you also have fear of describing the Trinity. Dad, what is the Trinity? I would like to describe it like this. Is there a better one? And so when you think of that binding love, that binding spirit that is part of the triune God resides in you, resides in this room, resides in this body, that is the bullseye where we cancel out one another's sin because of the binding love we have for one another. For one another. You want to hear how the Gentiles said it? Read 1 Corinthians 13. I won't read it for you in the of time now. But then he'll give you a linear thing that says the same thing and not the same, doesn't use circles. The mind, the body, the heart, the bullseye. It's where Redeemer, Presbyterian, this is how we roll. This ought to be how we roll. This ought to be our M.O. There should be no sins between us. We should not implode. In fact, we should gush forth. This should be the way we express our love to one another and our love to the world. We cannot get the cart before the horse. Saul wanted to go make the sacrifice, but he forgot to love the people. We start here. It's the way the church has made it to the point that we're at. I'm sorry when you ask an engineer contractor to preach, you get circles and lines. <laughs> that God be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Lord, we love you. We ask you to be patient with us as we work on our love for one another and for you. Please give us the multitude of gifts so that we can cancel the multitude of sin between us. Help us, Lord, to be good stewards with those gifts that we minister to one another through Jesus Christ who endures forever and ever. Amen.